Welcome. We're glad that you're here today. It's a beautiful day. Very grateful for your presence. We hope that our service today will be a blessing to you. We're very grateful for the number of visitors that we have with us from week to week. And as always, we want you to feel welcome. We're very grateful for the opportunity to be together today. I know that many will be traveling this week. Uh, we wish you a very happy holiday season. And we pray that uh, you will be safe in your travels this week. We're going to be looking today in our lesson at John chapter 12. Really, we want to use this as a springboard to our lesson this morning. Let me just read for you John 12, beginning in verse 20. There were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. And in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. What we want to do this morning in our study is take what I would call a panoramic view of Christ. There are a lot of people in our world today that have some idea about the identity of Jesus. And there are a lot of folks that there are gaps in their knowledge of Jesus. They want to know something about him. And like the Greeks of old, they wish to see Jesus. What's he all about? Who is he? So what I want us to do this morning in a very simplistic way is to take a biblical view of the portrait of Jesus. And there's a lot said about Jesus in Scripture. As a matter of fact, if you were to sum up the Bible in one word, it would be redemption. As you well know, redemption revolves around Jesus, the Son of God. The Old Testament is pointing people in the direction of the coming of the promised seed, the Messiah, the Son of God. The New Testament is really a confirmation that Jesus has come. This long-awaited Messiah, the one that Moses wrote about in Genesis 3.15, following the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the New Testament is simply an affirmation that the Messiah has indeed come. So let's just take for a moment or two a look at what the Bible has to say about Jesus. What does the Bible say about Jesus? I want to begin by first of all talking about His virgin birth. And there are a lot of scriptures that we could appeal to in our study today. <clears throat> and I want us to begin by looking at Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Seven centuries before Jesus came to earth, the prophet Isaiah spoke about the revelation of the virgin birth. Isaiah has been called the statesman prophet. And here's this prophet writing some 750 years before Jesus came to earth. And Isaiah said, Behold, the Lord will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel. If you pick up in the book of Matthew, Matthew is a confirmation for people of all ages that Jesus was indeed born of the virgin. We talk about the reality 
of His birth and the reason for His birth. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew tells us that an angel spoke to Joseph and the angel said in a dream, that which had been conceived in Mary was of the Holy Spirit. And he said, she shall bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. But listen, if you would, to what Matthew says in connection with the prophet Isaiah. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So you think about Jesus and the virgin birth, and the reality is that Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was the God-man. Now, there are a lot of folks that have the idea that Jesus did not come into being until the birth as recorded by Matthew. But Jesus has always existed. He is an eternal being. As a matter of fact, John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In verse 14, here's what John said about this eternal Logos, the Word. He said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Micah, hundreds of years earlier, had foretold of the birthplace of Jesus. He identified it as Bethlehem of Judea. And Matthew tells us in chapter 2, that Jesus was born exactly where the prophet Micah had said centuries earlier. And Micah said, speaking of the Christ who would be born in Bethlehem, whose goings forth are from of old, even from everlasting or from the days of eternity. And the idea is that Jesus has always existed. He has always existed alongside of God the Father and the Holy Spirit. So the, the virgin birth, documented by Matthew, foretold by Isaiah, and as you think about the biblical portrait of Christ, it begins back in the Old Testament. As the Old Testament writers foretold of this Messiah, but He was born of the virgin. But then there's a second thing I want to call attention to, and that is his virtuous life. You know, the Greeks that wanted to see Jesus, no doubt, wanted to be in the presence of the one of whom they had, no, that they had heard so many things about. Can you imagine having the opportunity to be in the presence of Jesus? What would have attracted people, multitudes of people, to Jesus? It's interesting to me when you go through the four gospel narratives that over and over again the writers talk about how multitudes follow Jesus. Do you think it had something to do with the miracles that he performed? I don't doubt that people were attracted to him because of all the many miracles that he performed day after day, but also because of his message. As Peter said in John chapter 6, 
Lord, you have the words of life eternal. There was something about Jesus. In Matthew chapter 7, after Jesus had presented what we typically call the Sermon on the Mount, the Bible says that they were astonished at His teaching. For He taught them as one having authority. They recognized that there was something different about Jesus. So what is it that's so astonishing about Jesus? I think His virtuous life stands head and shoulders above all of the great people that have ever lived upon planet Earth. I mean, you think about some of the great, great people that have lived in this world. Go all the way back in history. There are people that are household names. Some are known because of their military prowess. Others because of their tremendous political power. Some because of their gift in the realm of entertainment. There are those that are acclaimed the status of greatness because of their athletic ability. And then you look at Jesus, the greatest of the greatest. So what sets him apart? To me, what really stands out his moral excellence. When you look at Jesus, there's just something distinctive about him, unlike any other. I mean, there have been a lot of great people in our world, and there are people today who have been identified as icons because of who they are and what they've done and their impact in certain spheres. But Jesus a name that resonates in every nation, among every kind of people. So what is it about Jesus, His moral excellence? The first thing I think about is His humility. You know, there are a lot of great people in our world, and there have been a lot of great people. Sometimes, sadly, greatness and humility have difficulty going hand in hand, don't they? There are some who are great and they want others to know how great they are. And they're proud and arrogant and conceited. And yet Jesus was the Son of God. And the Bible tells us that during the ministry of Jesus, He would say, I am meek and lowly in heart. I'm humble. Do you remember the Apostle Paul when he wrote about the submissive nature of Christ in Philippians chapter 2. And he said, Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, counted not being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And being made in the likeness of men, he humbled himself. Jesus was humble. And you look at his life and his ministry and the myriads of people that he came in contact with on a daily basis, and time and again he demonstrated humility. And then his holiness. There was something special about Jesus. Solomon, many years earlier, had said, Righteousness exalts a nation. 
Sin is a reproach unto any people in Proverbs 14. And there have been a lot of great, great people in our world. But many great people have not chosen to live a holy life. If anything, they have lived the exact opposite of holiness. The Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 7 that Jesus was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Do you remember in John chapter 3 when Jesus talked about light coming into the world? And he said, men love darkness rather than light. Jesus came to exemplify light. He would say in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. He that followeth after me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. There was something about Jesus that stood out. His holy demeanor. His character, unassailable. So when I look at Jesus, I think about His humility, His holiness. And then what about His spotless reputation? You know, Peter said that we have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. Now, Jesus was the Passover lamb. According to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, the Passover going back to the exodus from Egyptian bondage when they were instructed to kill a lamb. A lamb that was to be spotless. It was to be a sacrificial lamb. It was a saving lamb. And Jesus was the great antitype of all of those. He was spotless. He was, as we would say, sinless. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Jesus committed no sin. You think about His spotless, sinless reputation. The world today is groping in spiritual darkness. And the world today, as Jesus said, in many respects loves darkness rather than light. And yet Jesus, as the sinless Lamb of God, came to redeem us. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. And then there is another feature, as I think about His virtuous life, and that is He was faultless. Faultless in life, faultless in death. Do you remember in John chapter 18 and then in chapter 19, as Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, Jesus is on trial for His life. And as you well know, He is about to be crucified. And Pontius Pilate had the presence of mind to say three times, I find no fault in this man. Do you know why Pilate could find no fault in Jesus? Because he had no fault. He was faultless. He was the spotless Lamb of God. He was the sinless Son of God. He was faultless. His moral excellence. There have been great people in the past that have achieved great notoriety. They've done many, many wonderful things. They have been acclaimed greatness by so many people. And yet some, because of decisions they made, choices they made, soiled their reputation. 
Not so with Jesus. And then as I think about his moral excellence, the fact that Jesus was forgiving. Now think for a minute about Jesus going to the cross. John said in John chapter 1 verse 3, all things were made by him. That means Jesus was the agent by which the world was made. Jesus made the human family. And here is Jesus, the creator, suffering at the hands of his own creation. And they have mocked and ridiculed and taunted him. And yet as Jesus, as Jesus hung on that cross, do you remember what he said? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Moral excellence. The moral excellence of Jesus is unequaled in the past, in the present, and as long as the world stands, will remain unequaled. There's a third thing I want to share with you, and that is his vicarious death. The Bible tells us that Jesus suffered for our sins that he sacrificed himself for our sins. And you look at the scriptures and begin reading about the depth of his suffering. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Christ hath also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. I mentioned a moment ago the trial of Jesus. And you remember he was betrayed by Judas Iscariot, sold out as we would say. And Jesus had the opportunity to stand in the presence of the high priest Annas and Caiaphas, of Herod and Pilate. And during that trial scene, Jesus was scourged. That's what the Bible says, John 19, verse 1. Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. They literally laid bare his back with a whip. They taunted him. As Jesus hung upon the cross, do you remember? They questioned his sonship. They said, if you're the Son of God, was Jesus the Son of God? Yes. Peter had affirmed, Earlier in his ministry, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. They questioned his sonship. They questioned his sovereignty. Because they said, if you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Could Jesus not have come down from the cross? The answer is yes. He could, as he said, have called 12 legions of angels. A Roman legion consisted of about five to 6,000 troops. What Jesus was saying is, I have 72,000 angels at my bidding. I could call them at any time, but he chose not to do that. The Lord Jesus was scourged. The Bible says they spat upon him. They mocked and ridiculed him, not only during the trial scene, but also as he hung upon the cross. So yes, Jesus suffered. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 
1, or chapter 2, that Christ also has suffered for our sins. But He was also the substitute for our sins. Do you remember Peter said that Jesus bore, listen to him, He bore our sins in His body on the cross. Why did He do that? Why did Jesus, why did He go to the cross? Why was He willing to suffer for us? Why become our substitute? Well, one reason is because God in heaven, in order to redeem the human family, needed a redeemer. And the only one who could fulfill that role was Jesus. And so Jesus answered the call. He was, as John said in Revelation chapter 13, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. But Jesus came and became our substitute because of the tremendous love of the Father and also because of His own love. Do you remember what He said? Greater love has no one than this than a man lay down his life for his sins. Do you recall Paul saying God commends His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died, listen to him, for us. Paul understood that Jesus paid the ultimate price for sin. So here, here is Jesus, as Peter said, the just dying for the unjust. Paul said, him who knew no sin, he became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So what did Jesus do? He redeemed us by his blood. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. And the book of Hebrews is presented as a contrast between, really a contrast to the superiority of the law of Christ to the law of Moses. Under that old Mosaic dispensation, the writer said, there is a remembrance of sin made every year. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sins. So Jesus came to redeem us. That's why Paul would say in Ephesians 1.7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Will God forgive all sin? Yes, He will. Will God forgive any sin? Yes, He will. How do I know that? Because here's what the Hebrew writer said, talking about that covenant that God would put in place through the redemptive work of His Son. He said, I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins and their iniquities, I will remember, listen to him, no more. God will forgive. To know that we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and reconciled in the body of Christ. Jesus paid the price on Calvary for our sins. And today we enjoy reconciliation in his body. It's called the church. When we obey the gospel of Christ, the Bible tells us we enjoy forgiveness of sins. We enjoy the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. We're added to the body of Christ, and that is the institution where the saved reside. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 5.23, he's the savior of the body. And the body is the church. So you think about the vicarious death of Jesus. Jesus died for us, didn't he? It's personal. It's profound. 
There's a fourth thing I want to share with you. And that is His victorious resurrection. The beauty of the gospel record is that Jesus did not stay in the tomb. But rather, Jesus demonstrated power over death, didn't He? We talk about the power of the resurrection. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness, listen to me, by the resurrection from the dead. You think about the greatness of Christ and the significance of the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul talks about the importance of the resurrection of Jesus. He identifies those who were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1, that Jesus was seen for a period of 40 days by many people with, any, with many unmistakable proofs. In other words, they had the opportunity to validate the resurrected Christ. When Jesus died on Calvary's cross and later was resurrected from the grave, the Hebrew writer said, He destroyed him who has the power of death, that is the devil. To think that Jesus Christ literally delivered a death blow to the devil. So what's the promise to us? Why is the resurrection of Christ so important to those of us who belong to the family of God? Every time we go to the cemetery, we are reminded of what happened in the garden, aren't we? And You remember Paul said that, that we are the products of what happened in the garden and the product being death, Romans 5, verse 12. Through one man's sin entered into the world and death by sin. Every time we go to the cemetery, we are reminded of the catastrophic event that occurred in the garden of Eden. But to know that there is a person who holds the keys to the cemetery. That person is Jesus. And Jesus said, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And then here's what he said, I have the keys of Hades and death. You know, one day, the Bible tells us the Lord Jesus will come again. His coming will be visible because John said every eye will see Him. His coming will be audible because Paul would write in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God. When the Lord Jesus comes, the graves will be opened. And so when Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, he said that Jesus is the basis for our living hope. That living hope is rooted in His resurrection. And because of that, He said to Christians of every age, He said, we have an inheritance. He said, it's incorruptible, it's undefiled, it fades not away, and He said, it's reserved in heaven for you. So you look at Jesus, and you think about those who wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to see Him. They wanted to, to have the opportunity to be in His presence. 
The Bible presents for us a portrait of Christ. A panoramic view of the Lord Jesus. And you look at Jesus, the one who came to earth, ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, but will one day come again. And his resurrection was a powerful statement. And to know that when Jesus comes, all of our loved ones who are in the cemetery, they'll rise again. One day, the Lord delays his coming. We too will rest in the cemetery. Our body will reside in the cemetery. Our spirit will go home to be with God. When the Lord Jesus comes, our body will be reunited with our spirit. And from that time on, we will dwell in the land called heaven forevermore. I want to close by reminding all of us of what Jesus said during his earthly ministry. He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, listen to him, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What Jesus is saying is, he has an eternal abiding place. And that place has been prepared for you. Don't you want to go to heaven? Don't you want to one day be with the Lord forevermore? Did you know you can? You know, many of us have, we've lost people that we have loved deeply and dearly upon this earth. This past week, we held a memorial service for one of our members, June Brents. And during the memorial service, we reflected upon her life. And as I look back over her life, I can honestly say it was sad to see her go in many ways. But I rejoice. She's now in the presence of God. And there are people that we love. And I said this this past week. We've got some precious cargo, some people on the other side. And we look forward to seeing them and being with them again one day. All that made possible by Jesus. And so, you know, whether we like it or not, we are mortal. Whether we like it or not, we understand that all good things come to an end. That includes life. And so we live in such a way so that one day we can go home and be with God and be with, listen to me please, we can be with His people. That means we can be with a spouse that's no longer with us. We can be with a child who's left us. We can be with a sibling, a grandparent, a grandchild. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to come to Christ. 
to believe that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be, and that's the Son of God. He never wavered in that. And Jesus said, except you believe that I am he, he said, where I am, you can't come. So to put your faith and trust in Jesus as the Son of God, to repent of your sins, to confess his name, to be buried with him in baptism, to enjoy forgiveness, as Luke describes in Acts 2, verse 38. And then to just live faithfully and to know that when this life comes to an end, we go on to be with God. You know what Paul said? To depart and be with Christ, listen to him, is far better. Life's great. And I love life, and I'm grateful for the blessings of life every single day. But Paul said, there's a better place. And I want to go to that better place, and I know you do too. If you're here today and maybe you're not faithful, you need the prayers of the church, you would like us to pray with you and for you. You know, John said if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Won't you come as we stand and sing?